Happy Valentine's Day, nerds. Welcome back to Cannonballs. We're actually recording this before Valentine's Day, but you're listening to it uh, pretty, pretty close to it. Um, so I hope you're enjoying it. In honor of Valentine's Day on Cannonballs, we read The Scarlet Letter. We're finishing it up. I'm Gemma Kaneko, joined as always by Ben Cosman. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Ben. How are you on this rainy day? Uh, I'm okay. I'm a little wet, but it's fine. Well, that's nice. It's kind of nice. Seeing it inside and warm and dry now. And back with us this week is Sarah Kuhn, the world's first and foremost Scarlet Letter appreciator. Though that might have changed after rereading <laughs> this book again. I don't know. Anyway, we are celebrating uh, the Hallmark holiday of love with adultery, the devil, and how men are terrible. Sarah, what do you think about my assessment of this book that men are terrible? Um, I think that's definitely what I learned from the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> if there's one thing I walk away with, it's that men are cowards and <laughs> and into. <laughs> Some weird maybe BDSM stuff. And also possibly the devil incarnate. So. <laughs> yep. I mean, all of these things confirm the theories that I've long held of, of men. So it's all good. All good. Uh, last week we read up to chapter 10 and now we're going from 11 to the end of the novel. Really quick, let me give you a reminder of who the characters are. Hester Prynne is an adulteress. Arthur Dimsdale is the minister who's also an adulterer with Hester. Roger Chillingsworth is her husband and Arthur's chief tormentor. And Pearl is her out-of-wedlock witch baby. She's not really a witch, but someone does call her a witch baby, which I enjoyed. Which would uh, probably be her screen name if she uh, she was on AIM. Yeah. My Twitter bio has witch president in it, which is from, uh, I want to say, a Mary Elizabeth Braddon novel. Um, so another piece of canon literature. <laughs> witch hyphen thing is nice. Yeah. Witch president. Anyway, uh, so in this in this half of the book, I'm going to give you a quick plot summary. I'm going to be really fast. But as we discussed before we started recording, nothing really happens in this book. So it's all psychological, whatever. Anyway, uh, when we last left off, Chillingsworth had weirdly taken off uh, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale's shirt while he's sleeping and saw something. So he gets incontrovertible proof that Dimsdale is the man who cuckolded him. And it's a red A branded into his chest, probably. Um, he then psychologically fucks around with Dimsdale until Hester confronts him in the forest and says she's going to tell the truth about their relationship, which is that they used to be married and now he's pursuing vengeance. Um, also, Dimsdale stands on the scaffold at midnight with Hester and Pearl. And Pearl's like, stand with us at noon. And he's like, no, I won't. So she <laughs> Uh, later, also in the forest where everything in this book now happens, Hester tells Dimsdale about Chillingsworth, and then she and Dimsdale hatch a plan to get the fuck out of Dodge and live as a real family in Europe. And Hester has to literally convince Arthur not to lie in the moss and die because he has no agency or ability to make choices. So she's like, get up. We have to do something with ourselves. And he's like, oh, all right. Be strong for me. I'm such a baby. Anyway, he goes back to the town, feels really great. But then he, there's like a whole chapter where he just so, thinks about being a dick to everyone in the entire town mm -hmm. suddenly for some reason probably my favorite definitely. chapter honestly <laughs> <laughs> so then they decide to leave right after election day which is celebrating a new governor probably who I, whatever um because Chillingsworth, or because because Dimsdale gets to do the sermon and he's really excited about it. Uh, but then Chillingsworth decides he's also going to get on the ship. Uh, Dimsdale gives the sermon, and then on his way back to doing whatever, he sees Hester and Pearl, runs up onto the scaffold with them, and obliquely gives the speech about sin and and trust and everything. Rips off his shirt to reveal the A, and then he just dies. <laughs> it's just dead. Um, and at the end, it's like some people think that he was the person that he Pearl's father and some people think that he knew he was going to die and did it to redeem Hester and whatever. And now that a lot of time has passed and Pearl is married in Europe and Hester is like a wise old lady and everyone thinks the A stands for Abel. Anyway, mm -hmm. end of book. 
<laughs> that's the end of the Scarlet Letter. Uh, hooray for Hawthorne. Um, so let's just indulge in one of my favorite pastimes, morally judging fictional characters. <laughs> That's what this podcast is for, I think. <laughs> yes, I think so. Uh, so there's a lot of pain and sadness here, all stemming from the fact that two people who are not married to each other have sex and a baby. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of blame thrown around in the book. So who do you think is responsible for all the things that the three main adult characters do to each other? Uh, a lot of people seem to blame Hester. So what do you think? People, people in the book, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I definitely don't think it's Hester. I think Arthur is a little to blame for being, uh, you know, cowardless, uh, dickwad. I don't know. Mm. Um, uh, but I think Hawthorne blames the Puritans, right? Like that's, you know, the most obvious thing is that these people are so, uh, you know, regimented and crazy that, they don't see their own hypocrisy. At least that's how I took sort of the major, because he could, he makes fun of the Puritans throughout this entire book. Like one of my favorite sections, he like makes fun of them for seemingly believing in the uh, divinity of comets. And I'm just trying to think, you know, there's probably some weird shit that the transcendentalists believed at the same time that we could make fun of Hawthorne for. Right. Yeah. He definitely, he goes on that strange rant during the um, election day chapter about how no one can really have fun because the Puritans are so kind of like buttoned up. And if this were like, if it were a town of regular people, this would be a totally great parade. But instead (laughs) people are just kind of standing about looking dour and like, upset. (laughs) Um, so I think definitely the Puritans are the ultimate villains of the book and kind of like the whole reason why anything bad that happens does happen. Although, um, in terms of the three main characters, I think Dimsdale's on my my number one blacklist because <laughs> he's just he's just so self pitying. He doesn't. I mean, like I feel like Hester takes on, you know, she feels okay. I guess this is what I deserve, and she takes it on. Like I think with a lot of strength, and Dimsdale's just kind of a weasel. I think, um, and you know, just dumb. I agree with you 100% that he is a weasel and dumb. And also that, yeah, what I think Hawthorne's done really well here is make these people really full, complex people. And the Puritans are sort of the unfortunate landscape behind them in which they live. So their complex actions can only be seen one way, like one of two ways by the world. Uh, And that's kind of fascinating because it leads them into these weird psychological problems that are sort of illogical in the sense like Chillingsworth knows Hester didn't love him but she married her anyway and then he just like fucked off for two years Mm -hmm. so there is but there's some sense of like okay even though he treated her poorly and presumably took advantage of her financial state to marry her or something because like the world exists in such a way that like he knew she didn't love him but they still got married anyway probably because there was some sort of financial benefit to one or both of them into in doing that um so but even though everyone knows this is like not great it's still not okay for her to have other feelings and then even though she's born it pretty well like everyone blames her for her whatever code she's violated of societies and they and they get stuck in these these roles of blame and they all come out worse for it so i do think you're right that Hawthorne is trying to say that we should just blame the Puritans for it. Um, also, we should blame the Puritans for the fact that no one in New England can have fun. Um, I just now let 
I see. I, I, I think that is the point. I think that's what Hawthorne was doing. And that makes me a little mad because I think it lets Dimsdale off the hook for being oh. so oh. totally ineffectual. Mm. Well, I also just think this book still rests on a deeply sexist foundation, which does sort of find a way to let Dimsdale and even Chillingsworth a little bit off the hook for being um, bad people. Like there's a point in the book um, in Hester and the physician, when Hester is talking to the world's worst doctor, by the way, <laughs> in the woods. Um, and he's like, he says, and what am I now? Demanded he, looking into her face and permitting the whole evil within him to be written on his features. I have already told thee what I am, a fiend. Who made me so? It was myself, cried Hester, shuddering. It was I, not less than he. And it's like, no, you didn't make the choice to just, you didn't tell him he had to be endlessly bent on revenge. He decided to do that. Mm-hmm. But that's still the idea that somehow it's her problem. And just like when later she talks to Arthur in the woods and she's like, oh, you know, he's my husband. I couldn't tell you, but now I'm telling you. He's like, he blames her. And she's she begs him for his forgiveness, which is insane because <laughs> she kept the, both of their secrets for so long. And now both of the men are like, it's your fault that I've made the world's worst choices with my life. <laughs> And I, I do think it, it it is just a product of even Hawthorne's time in which he lived. Like, he doesn't do the typical thing of being like, well, Hester was too sexy and it's her fault. <laughs> but, but he still does sort of make it like her strength is sort of her pride, too, and that's her downfall. But it's like, no, I find her pride the most interesting and complex element of her character, whereas Dimsdale is just, like, too afraid to res- risk his reputation at all. And Pearl rightfully makes fun of him throughout the book for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think Pearl is the Pearl is the best character. Certainly my favorite character yes. in this book. Pearl's the um, best. I do, I think Hawthorne, I struggled with what Hawthorne thought of Hester throughout this book. Um, particularly, there's a section on 174, that's the start of uh, chapter 18 that I really liked, um, where he's talking about how she has basically been freed from the, you know, institution, like human institutions, he calls them, uh, which is Puritan society. Uh, and that, that has made her sort of this full human in ways that she would not have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I, I couldn't grasp. And then there's the end at the very end. He basically compares her to, uh, as like a proto feminist. And I was actually reading in the introduction that, Someone was saying that uh, Hawthorne based Hester on Margaret Fuller. So there's this idea that she is this proto-feminist that will um, sort of lead to greater change in the future. I don't know. I I mean, I certainly don't think Hawthorne successfully landed all of that, but it, it was ambiguous enough where I couldn't get a read on how he felt about her as a character. Yeah, it is interesting because also there's this point in the book where she is thinking about whether she should just kill Pearl uh, so that she can spare Pearl from the indignity of having to live life as a woman in this garbage time. Um, And uh, then the narrator's voice is kind of saying like, well, maybe she has a point. Uh, because he says she discerns as it may be such a hopeless task before her. This is making the world better for women, by the way. That's the task. Mm-hmm. As a first step, the whole system of society is to be torn down and build up, build, built up anew. Then the very nature of the opposite sex or its long hereditary habit, which has become like nature, is to be essentially modified before woman can be allowed to assume what seems a fair and suitable position. Finally, all other difficulties being obviated, woman cannot take advantage of these preliminary reforms until she herself shall have have undergone a still mightier change. 
in which perhaps the ethereal essence wherein she has her truest life will be found to have evaporated. A woman never overcomes these problems by any exercise of thought. They are not to be <laughs> solved or only in one way. If her heart chance to come uppermost, they vanish. So basically it's like, okay, making society different would mean like it's been really terrible for women for so long. So we'd have to change it. And that would just take a lot of work. So one who wants to do that work two. Can women even really do that without changing their very nature, which makes them women? And that's the narrator's voice saying that. Right. Yeah, I do think, I mean, going back to this section I was referring to earlier, Hawthorne says that the Scarlet Letter was her passport into regions where other women dared not tread. Uh, so, he's yeah, he's basically saying that the only way for women to uh, live full lives is to not exist in society, which does seem like a little bit of a cop out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because I, I mean, now that we're talking about this, it's making me think that like, um, really, the three female characters who have any kind of part in the book are all outside of the society. They're Hester, they're Prynne, and they're uh, the witch, Mistress Hibbins, who's definitely who I believe not- is the witch, witch president in this book. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was thinking, you know, before, um, interesting that they kind of are the characters who are able to exert the most independence. But now that we're talking about it in this lens of like, they maybe they're not worth writing about because, you know, if they're part of the society, if they're within, if they're um, women are following this puritanical law, they're not worth writing about because they're not worth knowing or interesting or anything like that. That is interesting that he considers the the rest of the women to be basically worth no more than a single general generalized impression, like all the mean ladies at the beginning. And then there's the one li- nice lady who he feels like she needed to kill her because later at the very end, he's like, oh, except for the one compassionate one who's dead now and Hester had to make her shroud. <laughs> like, I think I that you're right, that he does he does choose these exceptional people for a reason, though. I, I do wonder what Hawthorne himself... I mean, it seems like he definitely enjoyed the thought of a strong woman, uh, whether or not he believed that women would ever achieve the kind of equality that he hints at that they maybe want is, is not something we can ever know. Right. I think, I think he gets into this like typical area of, um, writing as a man where he's like, all the Puritans, they were so bad to women. Like they're terrible. Look at how bad they are they're so much better now, even though it's still really bad. And like, he, he is, he spends so much time, uh, sort of focusing on how bad the Puritans were that he doesn't even examine his own prejudice, uh, which is, you know, tends to happen even now. (laughs) True. I have a lot of thoughts about that. So let's talk about Hester's plan and sort of the denouement of the novel when Hester and Arthur plan to leave with Pearl and live a real life together. Um, of course, that doesn't happen because Arthur is seized by some extreme emotion and gives his speech and then dies in Hester's arms. Uh, what did you think of that ending? What did it mean to you? Oh, man. I thought that ending was so lame. <laughs> Why? Uh, because I wanted, A, I wanted anything to happen. I was begging for a plot at this point. Um, <laughs> and B... I mean, Arthur, it almost reads like a redemption of Arthur. I don't know if it was supposed to, but uh, I just thought Arthur was totally useless. And like, he even ruined, well, I guess he doesn't ruin Hester's plan because Hester and Pearl end up going to Europe. But um, 
it, it, there's a there's a quote on it's page 224 in my edition which is the penguin edition if you're reading along at home um but it, he hawthorne writes that mr dimsdale's story uh is only an instance of that stubborn fidelity which with a man's friends will sometimes upheld his character or, or uphold his character and it's basically arthur died before he got what was coming to him and because he died he became this uh, almost revered character or martyr for some sort of cause and so he did not, Arthur didn't live long enough to be punished uh, accordingly, I think. I agree. Sarah, what do you think? Um, I mean, I think that that whole, it was like a couple chapters when they were in the forest, but that whole scene was really frustrating for me because it felt like Dimsdale was saying, oh, Hester, you're so lucky to have, you know, even though this whole book we've been reading about how people are terrible to her, how she's taking on literally, um, you know, a symbol of her sin. She's always living with it. She's an outcast. Um, and, and kind of how he's saying like, but you're lucky to have had it out. Like, woe is me. I've been (laughs) having to hide everything. And that's like even more of a burden. Like, even though you've been lonely your whole life, even though you've, you know, been cast out, um, and unknown. And so, um, if I had, I started with very little, um, pity for, um, Dimsdale, very little empathy. It all left during the forest. I was glad when he died, it couldn't come soon enough for me. <laughs> but the, um, I mean, there, you do get the sense too, that they're not even going to have the happy ending that they plan in the forest because, you know, Chillingsworth throws that wrench. I'm coming this kind of thing that like, makes it seem like he's going to follow them throughout. It doesn't matter. He like got bought his own ticket on passage, that ship or whatever. Um, do you remember that part when? Yeah. The, so I don't think that there ever was a better, I don't think there ever was a good ending or a happy ending for these characters. I think, um, and I think to Dimsdale, he was, finally stepping into uh just like taking ownership over his role but it did just it was too little too late because that you know he's already on his way out and he knew it he essentially was like now that I'm dying I think I can tell everyone (laughs) yeah I thought it was the coward's way out for sure um and that I agree that he's saying oh you're lucky you're lucky but he's really just whining because everyone still thinks he's great and he has only suffered because he is afraid of consequences mm-hmm. like he's not really facing any conse- any material consequences in life and like for me at this time um especially in our culture with all the like hashtag me too backlash of people saying, Oh, this is like ruining men's careers. But actually, no, that's not true at all. Like is Harvey Weinstein in jail? No. Is Mel Gibson still making movies? Yes. Like none of these people suffer any real consequences and neither does Arthur. People publicly adore and appreciate him. And Ben, like you said, even when he's dead, people kind of think of him as this like saintly martyr to an idea. So he never, ever, ever has to even face even one-tenth of what Hester has to deal with for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, we, and I, I underestimate the fact that like, there's like seven years has passed since the beginning of this novel, um, which is insane to me. Why? Well, it's just because like it 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 gives 
like you were saying, it gives more effect to the fact that Hester has been living alone with Pearl for seven years. And Arthur has just been, you know, you know, I guess secretly sick, but also like, you know, nothing materially has changed about his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think his internal struggle is not a struggle of between good and evil. I think it's a struggle of a man who doesn't want to accept responsibility for his actions. And that's like the greatest fear that he has. And he doesn't even really do it at the end because like you said, Sarah, he's just dead and it's too little too late and it's over. Like it, it made me really angry um, because he kind of just like, I, I have no sympathy for that. I have no sympathy for this person who constantly is asking Hester to be strong for him. Like he says that constantly. He's like, be strong for me, be strong for me, be strong for me. It's like nothing bad happened to you in your life, honestly. And he <laughs> still admonishes her. Like when yeah. she says something out of line or what he considers out of line, he still admonishes mm-hmm. her. It's like, dude, come on. Or when, you know, when she comes... Um, when she comes forward about um, her relationship to Chillingsworth and he, for a moment is like, I can't forgive you. Right. You day one, man. What do you end up on that, that scaffold with her? It's, it's just infuriating. It's just like, it's deeply infuriating. Chillingsworth, I guess like his devilish soul animation sinks away from him when Dimsdale dies and he just dies a year later and it's like, whatever. But I, I can't help feeling like this entire thing also, like all the anger and rage is basically rooted in like a, what is at the time considered to be like an improper property transaction. So just like, much much anger about arthur and his his terribleness and i think that hester and pearl were better off going to europe without him and that at least is a happy ending for pearl because what do you think happens to pearl at the end of this book there was that there was that strange stuff with she became she uh chillingsworth left her property or something she became like the number one heiress but then it seems like they left it all behind that's right they and to move to england some of the property is in England. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think she's, it sounds like she's set up then. Yeah. 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 And then Hester is like making baby clothes and like gets mail and everyone's like, oh, she's getting mail and it's like fancy mail. So it seems like Pearl married well, at least, or set herself up independently very well. And Yeah. Uh, I can't really puzzle out why Hester went back. That is a question that I had for everybody. Yeah, I don't know why she would go back. Well, I think Hawthorne is very much tied to this idea of people being rooted to where they, uh, like, where the story of their lives occurred. Like, there's a and there's a quote from the first section that we read last time that he he writes that people haunt where they uh, were given the color of to their lifetime, and I think that is a very strong idea in this book that Hester is sort of inseparable from Salem uh, because of the Scarlet Letter and because she was branded and because of the seven years that she suffered with the Scarlet Letter, that this is just her home and this is her, uh, it defines her existence. So living anywhere else, it's like, it's like taking her out of where she's supposed to be in a sense. Um, I don't agree with that. I think it's kind of cruel to um, not let Hester escape her torture basically. Um, but I think Hawthorne is very tied to this sense of place. And I mean, he starts 
the book with 45 pages about the, <laughs> uh, about the place and about how spirits and the past haunt a place. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I think that's what he's doing when, when Hester returns. There is something really interesting though, in the fact that she's the only character who doesn't get to escape. Um, and, and I, I'm thinking of this because you said escape her torture. It's like, she definitely wasn't the only character who was tortured, but all other characters who did undergo any kind of, um, tragedy during this time, you know, they're onto something else, you know, the afterlife or a new life and family in England. And, you know, for her to return, I don't know, there's something like very sad and, um, makes me wonder about why she would have to go back being the only one who's kind of still trapped in this time, like unable to let it go. Yeah. Trapped in this time is an interesting idea too, because at the end Hawthorne does kind of note that the world around her has moved on a little bit and that they're not all the same dour Puritans as they were at the beginning of the book. Um, I wonder if it's even sort of a tribute to her strength in a way, because he compares her to Anna Hutchinson a lot, uh, who historically founded her own sect of Christianity where women were empowered to preach. And it was like about a very personal relationship with God, um, which at the time was not cool because it was the elected men of the church who were supposed to be delivering these ideas to people. Um, So I think he does admire her strength and persistence in a way. And maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe that has something to do with him feeling like she embodies, embodies this, like it's beyond the A now she's made it part of her strength instead of had it taken away from her. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, based on how all the men just basically get the two men at least, you're right, get to die and n- escape and never have to deal with anything ever. It's it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Um, I mean, I still think she should have left the day after they gave her the scarlet letter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Who knows? But she's apparently great at talking her way onto boats. <laughs> I mean, apparently it's really easy because the literal devil talks his way onto the boat. The guy's I mean, like, oh, yeah, come on, right, come on aboard. The devil's great at doing stuff like that. <laughs> He's a I guess I, I do. I, I mean, we can talk about this later. I don't know if I, I still haven't decided if he's the devil or not. But. Well, I mean, I as we discussed last time, Sarah and I do think magic is real in this book. I don't know if you still do, Sarah, but I really did think that Mistress Hibbins believed or like, I think it is a little bit fantastical in the sense that she was totally like having some witch parties and talking to the real devil in the woods. Oh, yeah. I mean, she did know all about Arthur and Hester talking and yeah. I couldn't figure out how she knew. Yeah. And, you know, I think even she talks to Hester at that parade and Hester's like, how did you know? And She's like, you think I don't know everything that goes on in the woods? <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> the woods busy, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so is there, if in that case, if there, this, this woman is an actual witch in league with the devil, w- is there good and evil in this book? And if so, what is the most evil thing and what is the most good thing? Like, how, what's our scale to determine those ideas? I, I don't know if there is good and evil in this book. There are a couple p- p- passages where Hawthorne uh, equates love and hate and basically says they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also a, pay, a part um, where he, he he says, quote, it is to the credit of human nature that except when its selfishness is brought into play, it loves more readily than it hates. 
And honestly, I don't think that's true. Like, I think Hawthorne is just wrong on that point. And I think the novel he's writing is evidence of that, where this entire society shuns and scorns a woman for one act of adultery. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, ostensibly a Christian society that, you know, again, Christianity is ostensibly founded on the idea of forgiveness and of forgiveness of sin. Uh, They do a real bad job of that. Um, (laughs) I well, he, don't... But he introduces that idea that you just said when he's talking about how people kind of like Hester now. It's like in that chapter, there's like a different view of Hester. When, of course, it changes, but he's saying, okay, well, she comes to the bedsides. Everyone admires her humility. And... Right, they like her because she's docile and repentant yeah. now. And the <laughs> like... edge has kind of worn off. So I think yeah. that's when, when he's making the point, though. Obviously, by the parade, when a bunch of out-of-town gawkers come and stare at her, everyone's just mean to her again. So. Right. right. Yeah, she yeah. always has that. That kind of um, space around her, that like invisible force of like don't cross the line um, near Hester. But I mean, I think that as much as they, um, as much as the townspeople come to like have a different view of her, I think they always needed her uh, to be kind of the outcast because to me it was about measuring their own goodness based on the worst thing that someone has done, which in this book was adultery. And I think that that kind of is the, like the shadow or the, like the underside of, you know, Puritanism and like Christianity is um, that you're kind of on a scale of goodness. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that part of why she gets a life sentence is because probably her existence makes other people feel not so bad about, you know, the terror, the, the, you know, the bad things they're doing are the way that they're frauds themselves. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think the most interesting parts of this book is when Hawthorne briefly touches on the idea that other people in the society are hiding just as much as Hester, but they don't have to wear it on their breast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wish he did more with that. Like, I wish we got to see, more of the characters we only really get to see dimsdale and he's wrapped up in the whole narrative mess anyway we don't get to see any uh you know other members of salem with their own sin yeah that's interesting because when in the first section there's a moment when she's walking around like very soon after she got the letter and she she feels it pulse whenever she walks by someone who she thinks who like might also have a letter on somewhere secret in their heart uh, and she's like, oh, but this person is like a walking saint. There's no way. I'm just being mean. Um, but what I was thinking about is Dimsdale is unique in the fact that he knows he's done something wrong and is beating himself up about it, even though he's too cowardly to really like make changes in his life. But it's like, is Dimsdale sympathetic to us? in this reason, because he actually even minutely can note that what he did is a sin as opposed to these other people wandering around the town who have done bad things who think, well, if I've done it, it's not bad because I'm not bad. Like that's an idea that I started thinking about that maybe made him different from some other characters. Um, Like we know about governor Bellingham and how he has this witch sister or whatever who dies. She dies in the witch trials. He mentions that he's like, Oh, she'd later pay for it with her life. Um, (laughs) But like that Bellingham fought in the Pequot war, which was essentially not a war, but was in fact just like a huge massacre historically. So that's the question I started asking myself, like, are these people in the town all really just as bad, but they just have convinced themselves that all the bad things they do are good because they can't acknowledge what's bad in themselves. 
I think I think that's right. I think that's what I think Hawthorne is trying to make that point about the Puritans and what this book lacks is the self awareness to acknowledge that Hawthorne doesn't necessarily have the um or he doesn't have quite as high a moral authority as he's writing with. Well, so there's this weird moment, your favorite chapter, right after Arthur and Hester decide to run away together and Arthur comes back and he just wants to like mess with everyone. He's like, wouldn't it be great if I just taught those kids a bunch of curse words? Like what if I just whispered something in this old pious widow's ear that would cause her to drop dead on the spot? And like he ignores the young virgin because he knows he'll just say something to her that will destroy her faith forever. Like what is that correlation? Is that real magic from the devil that Mistress Hibbins knows about? Or is that like... Or is that his psychological thoughts is that he's given himself a way out that he doesn't think he deserves. So he has convinced himself that now he's bad. Like, what is that? What is going on with that chapter? Yeah. To me, it was a little bit like opening a door, like from the moment he kind of lets himself imagine he's been essentially for seven years, he's been, you know, putting himself through this torment. He's his number one, like enemy we could say. So, um, when he and Hester make that plan for the future and he can imagine uh, this new life, I feel like it's the relief opens this door to kind of like mischief or something. That's, that's kind of the reading I took. Yeah. I think I read it as he is freed. He is freed from the strictures of society in the same way that Hester has been. But whereas Hester, um, you know, remain docile and repentant and, you know, courteous and she served the town arthur takes it and almost like two weeks left of school fuck it i'm gonna burn <laughs> these bridges while i have the chance yeah just like uh, even further proof that he's a dog right <laughs> um i don't know i i almost i it is my favorite chapter because i think it is the funniest chapter yeah it's pretty funny. um but i don't i i honestly i think it's it's almost the point you could see where Hawthorne is almost arguing against himself where he's saying that without, without the pressure that the Puritan society put on Arthur, if he, if he decide if Arthur decides that he's going to leave that and he's free of that, he just becomes this asshole. So maybe that's saying that we're all assholes deep down. And the only thing keeping us from, you know, killing old ladies with curse words is, <laughs> is, uh, societal pressure i don't i don't know yeah that's why that was so interesting to me because i did think in pretty much every other respect of the novel it was like oh the puritan stricture it's like like the pure the, is is what is causing these pains and struggles and issues and we need to take a much more flexible view of people's lives and what's good and what's bad except for this chapter because arthur brings up in the woods he's like if i were an atheist and then he's like atheists are cold and <laughs> then I would just be fine with this and go live my life. But he, it, it, but then in this moment when like, it does seem like the boundary is dissolved, that's the argument that I feel like the Christian club at my high school would always make. It's like, if, well, if we don't have these rules, then people would just go around like stealing shit and doing all, and like breaking all the commandments all the time because, and it's like, and the atheist argument is always like, why? (laughs) Why why do you think people are only good as long as someone is threatening them with punishment to be good? Which would imply then that humans are innately bad Mm. and can only be forced to be civil and decent uh, by being threatened with eternal torture. 
And that is an extremely like, I mean, frightening and violent idea to me. And I, it seemed contrary to everything else that uh, Hawthorne was trying to do. Right. It's this, the society, you know, if the people who are saying the only, the only thing keeping us from anarchy is the rules, that is this self-admittance that the only thing keeping them from anarchy is the rules, um, which I think is Hawthorne's point the entire time. I don't know. I got, th- yeah, this, this chapter threw me for a loop. I also couldn't figure it out. I couldn't square it with what Hawthorne is trying to do with nature in this book, yeah. where he clearly, you know, as a transcendentalist, he clearly values nature and all of the breakthroughs in this book happen in the woods and the forest. Um, and he, there, you know, he writes that nature is never subjugated to, by human law. Uh, and Pearl born, uh, is born of nature and she's, um, you know, the, f- clearly the freest character in this book. And the only one that has a real happy ending, um, I I don't I couldn't yeah this this chapter was hard to square for me. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Um I mean, I do think a lot of his language in that section is a little bit like he was writing this during the second great awakening, well not during the second great awakening, but like he definitely had would have been aware of the second great awakening. Um his book was published in 1850, so like basically 20 years before that would have been its peak. Um and that there's there are a lot of those kinds of like tent revival things sermons going on of people preaching this kind of of situate these situations so i that to me i was like oh this seems to have a distinctly modern flavor modern being his specific time um but i did i yeah i found his conception of nature also to kind of be reminiscent of fairy stories which is that nature is totally amoral and doesn't care what you do ever um Mm -hmm. and I didn't know how I was supposed to think about that. Still don't. Right. It's it's both home to Miss Hibbins' witchcraft and, you know, uh, Pearl's, you know, a light of, a beam of light literally shines on Hester or <laughs> yeah. Pearl in the forest as she's playing. So it's, it's a little of both. Uh, well, good for Pearl, at least. She got out of it. She got her own great life and presumably never thought about anyone in New England ever again, except for her mom. Uh, all right. It is that time to play. The die of death. Uh, we will play one of six games. Well, each of us will get to play a game. And the game, the, if, since this is the end of the book, we will not play predictive games. So we can play What's Your Favorite Quote? Would You Rather? Who Goes Nazi? Pitch the Bad Gritty Reboot? Share a little of your favorite fanfic? Or wow, this got racist and or sexist, which we did talk about a lot. But I am always happy to talk about more. Um, ben, would you like to go first? Uh, I would love to. All right, I'm going to roll for you since you are far away from where I am in space right now. Oh, you got a six. Wow, this got racist and sexist. <laughs> Great. Uh, I always, you know, love that. Um, so as we've talked about almost this entire episode, this book is pretty sexist in the fact that it's one, you know, main female character doesn't get to escape her uh, punishment or not only, at least not in the same way the male characters do. And she is sort of, she's valued in this town as for her docility and repentance. Um but I do, I do think, well, at least I think Hawthorne is trying to redeem himself where he gets, particularly at the end where she, she does sort of start this entertaining ideas of feminism and, um, you know, fighting the patriarchy. There is, in terms of racism, I think, I mean, it's everything with Native Americans in this book that are still treated as uh, like heathens, basically. And even Hawthorne is writing them as heathens. Like he's not, that's not even something he critiques of the Puritans and it doesn't seem like he's interested in it. Um, I think at the end, 
in in the parade when everyone is looking at Hester and the people from out of town are looking at her. He's he writes something like even the heathen Indian is judging her at this point. Um, so yeah, you know some typical eighteen fifties racism there. Woohoo! Terrible. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. This whole book just rests on an inherently sexist pre- like premise, and that's just right. The, 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 I think the to me one of the most sexist things about this book is that it's clearly trying to be not sexist, but still <laughs> is. Like it's it's trying so hard to make a point. Like I'm not sexist, you know. Look how sexist these guys were, uh, but still reinforces a lot of problematic uh, notions of uh, femininity, femininity, and uh, women's role in society. Yeah. Yep. 100% agree. Um, Sarah, are you ready for your game? I'm ready. All right, I'm going to roll for you. Here we go. You got three. Who goes Nazi? In which you get to tell us which of these characters would have been Nazis were they in the position to become them <laughs> in the early and late 30s. In Germany, obviously. <laughs> I mean, um, I feel, I can't remember the guy's name, but do you remember the pastor who, the preacher who speaks in the very beginning, um, right after Hester's re- um, released from jail, he speaks before Dimsdale and he's oh, yeah. kind of like Dimsdale tr- trainer. Wilson, Wilson, I think. Yeah. So I feel like from him, you get the most um, kind of rigid, uh, this is how people should be. There is no room for um any kind of um individuality outside of what i think or how i think that people should act and how people should um live their lives and um to me that there's something there's something about that that screams um this is a person who would um this is a person who would find a lot of enemies in the world and be happy to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that they would all be Nazis except for Hester. And Pearl. Yeah. Yes. Because she's a child. So it's <laughs> absolved of that kind of, yeah. But I like, I absolutely think this is a town full of people who conform to what's being done around them and have no attempt to think like that's, I, I do agree with you that pastor Wilson would ever be like a leading Nazi, but right. Definitely, definitely. I think Dimsdale would be a Nazi, but he would feel bad about it, you know? Right, he'd be a cowardly Nazi. <laughs> he'd be like, oh, I know this isn't really great, but if I but if like I took a stand, then everyone would know that I think differently, and that would just be such a pain for me. <laughs> Ugh, I hate Arthur. Anyway. <laughs> All right, I'm going to roll for myself now. Here we go. All right. I got a one, which is what is your favorite quote? Yeah. So, uh, there are a lot of, I mean, he's a good writer. Um, though I do think that this particular book is, um, I, 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 by the end of it, I was like, oh my God, I please, please stop describing this. Please, please, please stop <laughs> describing this. Um, I'm going to tell you my runner up first, which is not a quote, but a moment, which is when Pearl is left to her own devices in the forest when um, Hester is talking to Dimsdale and she just like leaves a jellyfish out to melt in the sun. <laughs> she is a future serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, can I just say, I love the moment where 
uh, Arthur kisses her forehead and she immediately goes to dunk her head in the brook to wash it off. That's so yeah. funny and so yeah. correct. She says she yes, I, could have completely even wash off the kiss that he left there. And I love that part. The way that she can manipulate like all of the she, all the flowers on her and then she takes something from one of the semen at the parade and like she puts it on her and adorns herself so well i thought oh she was, gets a gold chain yeah yeah the, and they were like no one wore it better than pearl the seven-year-old girl who's just like flitting around <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pearl's awesome pearl just pearl just, just tells all the truths in the world she's like you're a coward and i don't want you to kiss me because you're you wouldn't do it in public so you're and that's probably why pearl gets married really well because she's not going to take any shit from anyone yeah she knows what's up um all right so my probably my favorite quote from this part of the book uh is one of the more famous quotes from the book which is about dimsdale and it's no man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true the reason i like it so much is because it it makes sense immediately and also because uh i think that one of the main things in fiction is that and in life is that characters are often lying to themselves about the quality of their own goodness. And Arthur is a person who tells multiple stories about himself and spends most of the book trying to um, avoid consequences. Um, I just read this other contemporary novel. It's called the best kind of people and it's by Zoe Whittle. And it's about a family who the father gets accused of sexually assaulting multiple minors and the family has to deal with that fact. And the book is a bit obscure about the actual incident. If you want to read it, I'm not going to ruin it too much. But the idea of the family coping is that they realize that this person that they thought they knew might be a completely different person. And also this man has to look at the rest of the world's idea of him to figure out which which person is is really the person he is um and i think that dimsdale has this idea of himself as someone who's fighting the devil um but is really just like a a weak coward And, and i like that quote so much because it encapsulates um this fight that he's having and how people lie to themselves all the time i yeah i think i i've been thinking a lot about arthur as this archetypal um male protagonist as in a lot of fiction particularly contemporary fiction and how he pre uh or he sort of sets the record for this introspective self-tortured uh cowardly male character whose you know internal struggles are all self-inflicted and yet he can't face any of them mm-hmm. uh, there's this i'm gonna sh- i'm gonna piggyback on your role and share my favorite quote which is author- also about arthur i piggybacked on the nazi um, so it's allowed uh, and 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 basically, Hawthorne is describing Dimsdale's you know situation. He says, "In such a case, it could only be the symptom of a highly disordered mental state when a man, rendered morbidly self-contemplative by long, intense, and secret pain, had extended his egotism over the whole expanse of nature <laughs> until the firmament itself should appear no more than a fitting page for his soul's history and fate." And that, to me, is just every male character in every novel after that, <laughs> who you know who perceives his pain, his internal pain. Uh, his self-inflicted pain as being so important and so devastating that it is written in all of nature. Um, I, yeah, I think I, I, I find, you know, for as useless as Dimsdale was, he's an interesting idea as a character and all the characters that came after him. Yeah, I agree. And I, like I said, one of my favorite pastimes is to morally judge fictional characters and I got to be really, really mad at him. So ultimately <laughs> I enjoyed that. Yes. Win, win all around. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. So before we wrap it up, uh, real quick, would you recommend this book to a modern reader, Sarah? Um, gosh, I think, I think talking about it with you guys was very helpful. I don't think I would recommend this to someone that they read it on their own. Um, because my, ex- my experience overall with the second reading was, um, that I was pretty frustrated. Um, but I think that you brought up a lot of good points, especially in, um, you know, last week's um, podcast about it being pretty relevant to some, you know, like current themes that are going on now. And um, so I guess, yes, I would ultimately. But I, you know, I would say, like, please don't hate me afterward, but <laughs> it's worth the read. <laughs> uh, ben, what about you? Yes, uh, I would definitely recommend this book. I I never read it before, and I loved this way more than I thought I would. Um, Interesting. I, I was expecting this to be uh, trudge, very droll. Um, a, the writing is really good. I would I would say I would not recommend it for high schoolers. Like I think teaching it in high school is a mistake, even though it is ostensibly a very moral novel. I think it does benefit from uh, our kind of discussion, which doesn't take it as seriously as... I imagine a lot of high school reading does. Um, and I think it is interesting both in terms of the context of contemporary society and the issues we face, but also in terms of contemporary literature, where I think a lot of the, both Hester and Arthur are very contemporary as characters. Uh, Hawthorne doesn't necessarily let them do as much as he could, but I think the struggles they face are um, very present in contemporary literature. And I, I, yeah, so I would recommend it. Yeah, I think I would too. Uh, I agree with both of your points. Um, I think it benefits from a slightly more adult understanding of the world than high schoolers have. Um, but also because I feel like the way it's taught is all about using symbolism, but it doesn't really delve that much into the symbolism and how it's used. That could be just me, my experience with a particularly annoying teacher from that grade, who I will not say even what grade, because I would feel bad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I would recommend it. If you like feeling judgmental and angry on occasion, which I do, which is why I like advice columns so much. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was an experience. (laughs) a good one. Every every podcast episode is an experience. Uh, Please come join us for another novel sometime soon. Okay. Uh, uh, Stay dry, and I will see you next week when we will be reading Ethan Fromm to keep up with our cheerful, horrible relationship theme (laughs) of the month. It's about Edith Wharton. It's going to be just depressing. We'll do a single episode on that, so get ready. I am I am so excited. I am chomping at the bit to read this book. Oh, this book. Another book that I read in high school. Anyway, um, I am going to go watch figure skating now. But if you want to keep talking to us, you can find us on social media on Twitter at Cannonballs Pod. That's C-A-N-O-N Balls with a Z pod. And on Instagram at the same handle. Uh, this is a podcast, so you can subscribe to it. It'll show up in your feed and it'll be great because who does not need more people complaining about classic novels in their lives every day? <laughs> Uh, We hope you do, and we will see you next week.